that saved my leg. Um, anyway, so that was awesome news. They saved my leg. They fixed the artery. They did an artery bypass. And um, the bad news was that the, uh, the nerves that control my foot were completely destroyed. And uh, the surgeon said to me, look, there's so much damage to those nerves. There's, it doesn't matter what you do. They're not going to heal. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio, and welcome to today's episode with Mark Matthews. Now, Mark is an Australian professional big wave surfer, and you want to see the size of some of the waves that Mark has surfed. It is impressive and horrifying in equal measure. Now, the conversation that Mark and I get into today focuses primarily on how to deal with two things that are both really crucial. Number one is fear. Number two is adversity. You're going to love the story that Mark tells about his injury and the pain, the physical pain that he experienced getting injured whilst big wave surfing and also how he got through that experience, the mental strategies and tools he used to deal with pain and then the lessons he's extracted from it that he actually applies now in the business world. So you're in for a real treat today. Mark's an embodiment of flow and he's an embodiment of peak performance with respect to his anti-fragile response to such adversity in having such a horrific injury. So I'm excited to take you through this episode today. Now, I want to briefly mention Stephen's new book, which is coming out in January. If you've ever read The Rise of Superman, Bold Abundance or Stealing Fire, and you have dreamt about there being a really practical, actionable how-to section, well, that's Stephen's new book, and it's called The Art of Impossible. It's a practical playbook for unlocking the impossible and achieving big, bold goals. You're going to love it. He covers everything from grit to accelerated learning to creativity to motivation and flow, the whole peak performance stack in a really, really practical fashion. So if you go to theartofimpossible.com, you can snag a copy there. You'll also get over $1,500 worth of free peak performance bonuses. So that's theartofimpossible.com. Grab a copy and your bonuses there. That's theartofimpossible.com. Now enjoy today's episode with Mark. Mark Matthews, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It's epic to have you here. I love that we can see a little bit of surfboards in the background there, which is very fitting. And yeah, I'm really, really excited to chat to you today about just your career as a surfer, as a keynote speaker now, the things you've learned about peak performance and your journey through action sports. So welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Great to have you here. 
Oh, thanks for having me. I'm uh, super interested in what you guys do. So it's, uh, I'm sure it'll be a fun conversation. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and to start it off, I'd love to ask you about your 2016 wipeout, which I know was significant. So can you tell us maybe a little bit of the narrative around what happened during the wipeout, why it happened, and then what the recovery process looked like and maybe what some of the lessons you learned along the route were? Yeah, so... um Oh, where do I start? I think it's worth starting previous or prior to this um, wipeout. I had a significant wipeout surfing, like huge waves in Hawaii at Jaws, uh, a break off um, Maui. And I wiped out on probably the biggest wave I'd ever ridden in my life, which was in the realm of sort of like 40 to 50 feet paddle wave. And I dislocated my shoulder really badly, like completely destroyed it. Torn pec, torn bicep, destroyed the rotator calf, just like, as bad as you can do a shoulder. Anyway, so I'd been rehabbing and recovering from that injury for about, it would have been 10 months, and I'd just gotten back in the water, like just started to surf again. I still couldn't paddle properly. I was kind of like uh, half paddling with one arm and not paddling properly with the other arm. But uh, an, an opportunity came up for a production with my sponsor at the time, Red Bull, and uh, it was a project that was centered around a different athlete, but they wanted me to be a part of it. And I said yes when I shouldn't have because I wasn't ready to go and surf any sort of dangerous waves in the state that I was in. But I ended up going down to surf a wave that breaks sort of on the southeast coast of New South Wales in Australia. Remote location, not a huge wave, but it's one of those waves that comes out of really, really deep water and then breaks on a rock bed on a really shallow reef. So it's only like inches deep where this wave breaks. And it was second wave of the day. I rode one small wave and then a big set came through and I wasn't familiar with the wave. So that was one of the mistakes I make. I didn't sort of do that due diligence to really study footage, speak to the locals about, you know, like how this wave breaks, how to ride it, what to look for. And I just went because it was sort of the biggest set of the day and I thought it would be a good one. And it was uh, ended up being too big for how shallow the water was. So I towed into the wave and the wave um, closed out and I just dove forward, jumping off my board, trying to escape the wave and swim out the back. So usually if you, if you can see that a wave's going to what we call close out, you want to sort of eject, get off the wave. So what does close out mean then for folks listening? Yeah, so close out is where the whole wave kind of breaks at once. And you can't safely ride out to the shoulder of the wave mm. when that mm. happened. And that I could see that that was about to happen. So I dove forward off my surfboard, trying to get down underwater so that the wave would pass over the top of me. And then I can swim away to safety. And I've done that a thousand times before. But this wave was just too powerful because too much volume like coming out of all that deep water energy. And when I dove off and the wave passed over me and I went to swim away, that energy grabbed a hold of me and just pulled me back, lifted me up and just smashed me down into the reef. And I landed um, I landed with all my weight on one leg and then that, all that power of the wave breaking on my back. So it, it compressed me down like a vice into the reef. And I just I straight away felt my knee pop and then blinding pain. I got rolled around underwater by the wave and the whole time I was just clutching down at my leg, like trying to hold on to it because the pain was so bad. And then I eventually kind of fought my way to the surface 
got a breath of air and just saw stars. Like I got so dizzy and just on the verge of fainting because the pain was so bad. Lucky my water safety team swooped in on the jet ski and pulled me out onto the jet ski, got me out of the impact zone, which is where the waves are breaking. And they took me into the safety of the beach. From that point, I was kind of in and out of consciousness, like fainting because of the pain. And I woke up the next day in uh, the closest hospital, which is about three or four hours drive away, still in blinding pain. And I, I looked down at my leg and it was just destroyed. It was in this big sort of metal brace and sides of it had just been completely cut open from surgery and I couldn't move my foot at all. I had kind of just burning nerve pain from my knee down. And then a couple of hours later, the doctor, the surgeon comes into the room and uh, he's kind of giving me that spiel, that good news, bad news spiel. And he said, the good news is that we managed to save your leg. He said, if I arrived at the hospital an hour later, he would have amputate my leg at the knee. What had happened was I'd, I'd torn the artery in my leg, the major artery that supplies blood to your foot. So it was internally bleeding. I was just really lucky that the first ambulance officer that met us on the beach, because we're in a fairly remote location, he called for a helicopter to come and get me and take me to a hospital rather than we jump in the ambulance and drive the sort of three and a half hours, which would have been standard practice because there was no external bleeding. So it was hard for him to see under my wetsuit and stuff the extent of the damage. But I'm just so lucky he made that decision because it saved my leg. Anyway, so that was awesome news. They saved my leg. They fixed the artery. They did an artery bypass. The bad news was that the nerves that control my foot were completely destroyed. And uh, the surgeon said to me, look, there's so much damage to those nerves. There's, it doesn't matter what you do. They're not going to heal. So he's basically telling me that I was never going to be able to control my foot again, which meant you know, surfing was done. My career was over, which was pretty shattering. And that notion of like my livelihood being gone, my whole sense of self-identity of what I did for a living, everything just gone. And, and I'd just gotten to the point in my career where I was kind of finally earning the type of money that I could, you know, like start to set myself up and that was just done. And then that with the unbelievable pain, like, and I've had like lots and lots of different injuries, <laughs> every injury under the sun and nothing compared to this as far as the pain. I think it was... The doctors are saying because um, the extent of the nerve damage, so when you damage a nerve or if a surgeon in an operation nicks a nerve, like you get really bad pain, that's like a tiny little millimeter of damage to the nerve, whereas mine, I had like 15 centimeters of damage to the nerve line all through my leg, and I think that's, that's what made it so painful. So because of the pain, couldn't sleep, livelihood gone, it was just like cascaded down into just dark hole of sadness and it was really rough for a, a period of time i got really lucky about i think it was a month or six weeks into being in hospital i uh i ran into a young guy who had probably he actually wrote to me on instagram like a message and he's like oh i read about what happened to you on a surf media website i've been following your career my whole life i'm a big fan i'm actually in the same hospital as you do you think i could come up and see you <laughs> This young guy was called Jason and I was like, fuck, I didn't want to see my close family or friends at that point. I had, I just isolated myself. I was in such a shitty mood. So I didn't even write back to him. But my now wife who was there with me at the time, she'd seen the message and she wrote back to him like from me. She's like, 
Yeah, no worries, Jason. Why don't you come up? We'll get a photo and, and hang out for the afternoon. <laughs> and um, so to my surprise, like Jason, three hours later, comes up to my room. But uh, he gets wheeled into my hospital bedroom by his brother. He's complete quadriplegic, broken his neck, snowboarding probably a, a few months before I'd hurt my leg. Oh. And doing anything crazy, just slipped on the ice. And now quadriplegic, rest of his life. And I feel so fortunate that I got to meet him in jail like this unbelievably resilient, optimistic kid. He's like 19 years old, first trip of around the world holiday. But the shock to me of seeing him and it just like highlighting to me how lucky I was to have the injury that I had compared to how bad it could have been and just seeing that like real time, just it just completely sort of shattered my current perspective and my situation, you know, I, I was so full of like self-pity, anger, just feeling like the most unlucky person on earth, like everything in the world was against me. And then in the blink of an eye, I just went over like full of gratitude, like the luckiest person on earth. So lucky to have the injury that I had, have the pain that I had, like it meant it was like nothing compared to what this kid was going through. And I think that that was one of the biggest jolting factors that helped me recover from the injury and eventually make it back to surfing because that shift in mindset like played such a huge role in my recovery. And I kind of like from there, like the healing of the, I had really bad infections after the surgery because my leg was completely oh. open and they were starting to sort of creep up my leg to the point where the, the doctors were getting worried about the infections. But after meeting him within two weeks, they were gone. Like they healed mm. so and the only thing I could put it down to, like the, even the doctors were like, what are you doing differently? Like are you, do you have some <laughs> weird herbal cream that you're rubbing on the wounds or something? Like, what, what's doing it? The only thing different was, was up here. Like I could see, I saw the world now. Like I was just full of that much happier. And I saw my situation as being like I was lucky even though the situation was tough. And that made such a big difference to me physically, like the way my sort of immune system was functioning and then my body was healing. So I kind of like looked into that. Like I always understood the value of like positive emotional states, but that really highlighted it for me. So kind of over the next 18 months of, of rehabbing for the injury, I, I made that the main point of my rehab was to feel that emotional state of gratitude like as many times as I could in the day. Like to me, that was as valuable as going to the gym to exercise and do the rehab mm. training to a physio session. It was like I wanted to feel that as many times as I could. I wish I could say I was on a cloud of bliss ever since and still <laughs> am, but I'd be lying. I was still like you still naturally slip down into dark holes, see things negatively again. But I, I just kind of built all these different little techniques and tools that could snap me out of it. And, yeah, that got me back. Like I, 18 months later, I, I got to surf again. I could stand probably surfing at about 30% of my capacity of what I could before the injury. And I got to ride my first barreling wave again. And it was nice. Of, yeah, one of the best. It's probably the best wave I've ever ridden just, just with the timing of it. Still scarred into my brain to see the inside of that barrel. And since then you know, like four years down the track, it's uh, it's just continued to heal and I've got myself, probably I surf now 60 to 70% of what I used to. I still have permanent nerve damage, so my foot doesn't work. But the final surgery they did, they 
fixed my foot at 90 degrees. Wow. It, it's cool it, to see that. Yeah, for folks it, who are listening, it, Mark's showing me the actual wound here yeah, on the video. Wow. Oh, that's wild. But so my foot's kind of like dead. It just it sits there like that. But um, I just learned to surf. Can you move it. your toes and stuff? I can grip down a little bit with my toes, but I can't lift them up. So um, wow. it's tough to surf because when you jump to your feet and your foot lands in the wrong spot, yeah. you can't make – there's yeah. all slight adjustments that exactly. you make surfing. Yeah. You grip, grip with your yeah, toes. grip and even just lifting them and shuffling them to the side. I can't do that sort of stuff now. So, But when I jump to my feet and that lands in the perfect spot, I'm good. Like I surf pretty decent then. But it's right. uh, yeah, it's been a crazy ride the last four years. But now I'm I'm back to surfing big waves again. So I can't surf as good as I could before. But I never thought I, I like there was a period I didn't think I'd surf again. So uh, yeah, I'm stoked to be where I am today. It's uh, it's pretty good. Thank, thank God for uh, thank God for Jason. Yeah, yeah I've stayed in contact with him. We're, we're good mates, and uh, I got to return the favor just because he played such an instrumental role in my recovery. So I got to take him. Um, so he wanted to surf again. So he's complete quadriplegic. So surfing is not an easy thing to do, man, <laughs> when you're quadriplegic. But uh, he he's just like such a driven, resilient young kid and he he went through his rehab and and built enough strength kind of in his shoulders so that he could ride a wave lying down on a surfboard and we're able to hire out a a big wave pool because i do public speaking work so i do a lot of keynotes and uh, i tell this story in the keynote so i was able to you know use a bit of that money that i was earning from keynote speaking to hire out this wave pool for him his brothers his friends and stuff and man the footage of him riding waves and the awesome thing about is they they get the control over how they ride the wave because he can turn the board just by leaning you know so yeah he he needs to ask someone to lift his coffee to his mouth to drink a cup of coffee or 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 drink his beer you know like it's it's sort of and and they're the parts that he's trying to like rehab to be able to do those small things in life that we all take for granted you know but so for him to ha- be on a wave by himself and have that element of control is such a like a euphoric amazing ex- feeling for him again after having to rely on people all the time so much so i think that's why like that rush is so exciting for him to surf so uh, it's epic yeah it's such a good story even just to hear it's such a positive slap in the face in terms of mindset i was I had a, I had a gym session earlier on that got cut short because of a phone call, and I found myself getting irritated by it or whatever. And you then you 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 know you hear a story like that, and it just shatters any little bit of that kind of take it for granted mindset. So thanks for giving us the detailed breakdown. I want to ask you a question specifically about pain and the the pain that you mentioned because you mentioned that it was extremely significant a few times. Can you describe? for folks what it actually felt like and i know it's difficult to put words to a sensation like that but what it felt like and then what some of the mental tools you used were to deal with the pain that built up through the necessity of having to deal with it uh at at its worst originally it's like if you stuck your leg up to your knee into boiling water like like if you're boiling oil or something you know like and felt that, that just crazy burn that's what it felt like from my knee down basically and now it's 
it's kind of a warm bucket of water all the time unless I do too much and then the water heats up and it, my leg just heats up and heats up. So, But at the worst part, I was on every pain medication under the sun. Like there was a point where I was probably taking, oh, if you, you take five milligram tablets of oxycodone, which is basically heroin, right? I was on 120 milligrams of that a day. So oh. basically a heroin addict. Through handfuls of tablets, yeah, like to try and deal with it, like it and it, it was bad. And then there was like all, all other nerve medication is like um antidepressant type medication, they use right. it for nerve pain as well, which is kind of interesting in itself. Just do like if you're altering, like, and that's the same with the it's funny because the the oxycodone, so the, the heroin type drugs, they don't actually work specifically on doing anything for the nerve pain but they make you euphoric you know so they make you so much yeah which offset you know and and i found the the nerve meds like the antidepressants worse for me like i didn't i really didn't like that feeling because that felt like nothing right like you just i unfortunately had to go to like a couple of funerals in the time where i was on all that medication and zero emotion at the funeral yeah, and I was like, this is so bizarre. So I got off that and just stuck with the oxy. Yeah, even though I know, I know they're addictive and the doctors tell you that you're high risk of becoming addictive, but I understood that, but it was, um, I knew I'd be able to get off it eventually. And and for and me, it was better than, than yeah, well, at least I got euphoria. You know? <laughs> like at least I felt that crazy high when I took it, which is kind of nice, you know, but um <laughs> I uh, my wife always jokes it's probably like the most loving I've ever been through that period. <laughs> 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 oh, when I had to get off it, it was like I had to replace that, and which I was lucky able to like as soon as I could get out and exercise, get back in the ocean and and swim again, and do all these different small activities that would give me enough of a rush to get some of those sort of positive neurochemicals back. Then I was able to get off, you know, I had to replace it. I was able to get off those meds and it was hard, man. It's not, your body goes through crazy withdrawals yeah. coming off that stuff. Yeah, it's but, its um, own, it's its own injury really or it's its yeah. own pro- healing process, you know, just that yeah. itself. So, so that's wild. It's a great, great description, by the way, the notion of dipping your leg into a, you know, bucket of boiling oil yeah. in terms of, <laughs> describing the pain it's ferocious so then on the other on the other end of the spectrum again as now, you know now one, well, like you asked the technique around the like i the, around managing the pain like psychologically now right. like one of the techniques like you can't escape like if you're not healthy you can't deal with pain like pain's inflammation so if you're unhealthy like if i drink a lot of alcohol if i'm partying not sleeping good the pain gets bad because you're just mm. magnifying the amount of inflammation in your body so a huge part mm. is staying healthy to minimize the pain. It makes a massive difference if I eat well, not drinking alcohol and I'm sleeping good. And then the other part is like the relationship to the pain. It's like something's got to shift where if every time you feel that pain, you're like you feel unlucky or bad about yourself or like that's stopping you from doing something, that in itself can become addictive because I could always, if I was doing I don't know, like if I didn't feel like doing something, I could blame it, my leg hurts, I can't do it, you know, which Mm -hmm. even in a relationship that becomes a problem because you can use it all the time like that. So I I tried to shift it 
where it was like, like, cause you get so much sympathy for the pain that you're in. That's right? it. So it's a constant thing you can use as a scapegoat for so yeah, or, or to get, yeah, to get sympathy. Like you're using it mm. to get sympathy all the time. And so you can get addicted to just getting the sympathy all the time oh, from the pain. Wild. And that's just like kind of magnifies the pain because your brain in a like sort of subconscious way is looking for that sympathy and what that does to your brain. And so it'll magnify the pain just to get it, you know. So uh, to me, mm. I, I kind of had to shift that. Rather than get the sympathy, I would get like kind of like accolades from people be- when they saw me do something despite the pain, yeah. And, right. and I would rather be addicted to that. So it's like when people are like, I can't believe you do that with, your leg like oh how do you you know do that and to me being addicted to that is way more beneficial to me that's a great uh, that's a great reframe yeah it's super interesting i hadn't thought about the fact that yeah having an injury or having vulnerability like that can become its own kind of meta source of vulnerability you know because you can just excuse yourself from things and get away with things that you know you know you could do better on super super interesting yeah, on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of peak states rather than peak painful states, the big thing we research is, is flow, as you know. And what I'd love to hear about is what the state feels like when, you know, you are paddling into, let's say, like you mentioned, a 40 to 50 foot wave. What is the state that you experience when riding down the face of a wave like that? Or, you know, could you describe to folks what some of the peak experiences are like when catching or riding your biggest or best waves oh i think the the, i mean the excitement and adrenaline of it all of riding the wave paddling for it taking off taking the crazy steep drop in and and the you know like all the fear involved in that is such an addictive feeling like the relief that you feel once you make it out the other side after you thought maybe while you're dropping into the wave that you know, like you're so on the edge thinking that you're going to wipe out and then you make it. It's like that rush of relief is such mm-hmm. a phenomenal feeling. To me, they're just like that. They're, they're moments, like really short moments of forced flow state because you just like mm-hmm. once you're riding the wave, you, you lose any element of ego, any element of like sort of apprehension about the future or the past, like all those different parts of thinking just evaporate because you can't do it because it's like the situation's so scary that it forces you into the moment which is such a nice feeling because while you're sitting out the back in the surf you you're thinking about a hundred things about what could go wrong or are you positioned right or are you doing this or like so your mind's going a million miles an hour so but then when you're on the wave that everything evaporates and it's such a, a it's an addictive feeling Hey there, Rian Doris here again. Sorry to interrupt for a quick moment. I wanted to remind you that if you want to order Stephen's new book, theartofimpossible.com, we have over $1,500 worth of peak performance bonuses that you can access immediately. They will get dropped straight into your inbox just for the price of the book, which is about 30 bucks. So it's a really, really super deal. And it's theartofimpossible.com to claim the bonuses. The bonuses include all sorts of cool things like secret chapters from Stephen's past books that he never ended up releasing. They include an impossible goal setting masterclass, how to set goals the right way, 
They include a course on mitigating distraction and maximizing attention to accelerate into flow and much more. So you're going to love the bonuses. Go to theartofimpossible.com or click the link in the show notes and you can check out and get them dropped straight into your inbox. Alrighty, back to the episode. What about being inside a barrel? That's one of the examples people often use of the epitome of flow as a surfer, you know, who's literally in the middle of a barrel watching the wave barrel over them. What, what's that sensation or experience like? Because I'm imagining the majority of our listeners haven't surfed a full barrel. Yeah, well, it's like riding a big wave, but it adds a visual component because you then, once you're inside the barrel, you can see the ocean just folding around you and it's like you feel that full force and energy of the ocean surrounded around you and there's crazy like roaring sound and when you surf Mm. a barrel you're always on the knife's edge of wiping out because sort of two feet one way you're wiped out two feet another way you're wiped out or like you know like it's only a foot or two in the positioning that leads to catastrophic wipeout. So it's like, it's like kind mm-hmm. of, I don't know, you, it's like walking over a tightrope, you know, like, and, and the tightrope's suspended over Niagara Falls or something, you know, like, and, <laughs> and it's like all this water and you're just like step at a time, but like one wrong move, you're wiping out. So it's just like, it's just that kind of forced focus that just feels so nice. That's epic. That's a great description. So one of the things you mentioned firstly that you had, the initial wipeout that you had to recover from, which then, you know, upon recovery resulted in the second bigger wipeout. So there must, and then obviously you're back surfing now. So there's been a process there of going from, you know, extreme life-threatening injury to back to the activity that caused the life-threatening injury. How have you been able to do that? How have you been able to get past the fear and go back to doing the thing that, you know, has almost ended it for you multiple times. It's really tough. I wouldn't say I'm there yet as far as like I I have a lot more fear and apprehension now than I did before I did this latest injury, like before 2016. Just because this, all my other injuries healed and I came back to surfing normally. And But this one's like, I'll never go back to being normal, you know, and, and that's like highlighted to a further extent the dangers of surfing. Mm. So I, I'm by no means past that or being at learning, being able to do deal with that. It's like it resets. Like I was terrified of big waves when I was a kid, kind of like everyone was, you know, and, and the only way through ex- fear is experience. So you do it step by step over and over again, bigger and bigger waves, go through wipeouts, survive them, come out the other. And that whole process of building experience is what allows you to overcome the fear. So for me now, it's just going back out there and, and going through the motions and slowly surfing bigger and bigger waves, wiping out and being fine. Like realistically, you, I've wiped out on thousands and thousands of waves without injury. Like it's not mm-hmm. a high percentage chance that i'm going to get injured you know like if i do the right things it's not a high percentage chance so it's building that experience back up to gain the confidence and um it's just a slow process it's tough i think for me like now that i have a young family now so i've got a a daughter she's she's 18 months old that's kind of offset 
the amount of risk I'm willing to take because before it was mm-hmm. about me, you know, like I can't yeah. and now I'm providing for someone, you know. So I'll definitely – I'm still going to surf big waves but not in the way that I used to. I think uh, taking a little less risk, surfing the waves in a different way, it would definitely be a little bit different. But, yeah, it's just the process of building the experience back mm-hmm. up. One of the uh, one of the models from sports psychology we may be familiar with is the idea of task versus ego orientation when doing an activity where task orientation is you engaged in the activity for the sake of the activity itself and ego orientation is engagement around you know how you're being perceived within the activity and it's the, the classic thing you know someone snowboarding and like or whatever, whatever activity or sport it is, but let's use the example of snowboarding and doing an amazing jump and crushing it and then doing the same jump the second time around, but being aware that their friends are watching and having a huge bail because all of a sudden they switch from task orientation to ego orientation. And when you mentioned that second wipeout, you mentioned the Red Bull had initiated it. Do you Mm. think there was an element of ego orientation that maybe slipped into either the, the accident itself or deciding to go for that wave in the first place in that case? Oh, for sure. I mean, my entire career was that basically. Like growing up, it's like it's pretty rare that you're going to go out and do a, da- a sport that's as dangerous as big wave surfing or any other action sport. I think you'd fail to find an action sports athlete or any athlete or any person for that matter that isn't like steeped in that ego orientation part of your brain or being like i think that's a huge part of it you know like it doesn't you can't get the motivation to do things like that without that part i think but it's managing that that's so important and that i learned that a lot throughout my career is like like the most stress that i've kind of felt wasn't necessary like beyond a point wasn't necessarily the fear of riding the big waves and drowning and stuff like that like i i could get that under control doing the preparation and the training more of the stress for me and maybe it's like my personality trait being hyper introverted is is more of the stress for me came from that ego orientation like you're saying like one like people's perspective of my performance and constantly being mm-hmm. analyzing you know because that is part of your career as a as a surfer professional athlete is like you have to get exposure you know like if you're not doing a good good job you're not the surfer that's on the magazine cover or 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 that people are following on social media and that's how you get paid you know so it's hard to Mm. separate the two the thing i noticed so much recently is because i now make a living keynote speaking right so and I make a better living than I ever did surfing for being paid with sponsorship by doing keynote speaking. So now I don't need the sponsors anymore. And so now when I think about surfing big waves without any stress of it being analyzed mm-hmm. for a career because I've got my income over here, now to me surfing big waves is way more exciting. And it's like I'm excited to go and do that because all of a sudden all that pressure's ripped away from it. I don't care what people think anymore because my career is not tied up in what they think. So it's mm-hmm. like I'm more excited to surf big waves than I was beforehand because there used to be so much stress and pressure around the performance aspect and what other people were thinking. I think it's an yes. interesting topic because I always wonder how can you train as hard? Like say if you're trying to dissect performance, right? So 
you've got to train ridiculously hard to say like, like win a, an Olympic gold medal in in swimming, right? So what's going to get you to do that amount of training? Like there's got there, there's no you want to be the best in the world at something. So that's ego. That's all ego. You know what I mean? But so then athletes have to they train in a sense to get to this ego related goal, but then in the moment of performance. It's like if you've only trained with a hyper focus on being the best in the world, then that's going to make that when you stand on the blocks to win that Olympic gold medal, like that's going to make some level of pressure in that Mm. situation because everything's tied up to that moment. So it's like you need the motivation part of the ego part, but then you need to also be able to switch out of it and fall into the focus of doing what you're doing because you love it for other reasons. It's kind of one of the paradoxes of peak performance, as you're saying, is that that extrinsic or ego orientation is amazing as a catalyst for initial action. But Mm. then to achieve peak performance and flow, you've got to be able to, within the moment, drop it so that you can focus singularly on the task hand, which is tricky, obviously. And it's interesting. There's research that shows that after a certain point, extrinsic motivation like you know, sponsorship deals or money or even getting a badass photo taken of you actually can dampen intrinsic motivation and performance. Yeah. And that's what I imagine as a, as a sponsored professional athlete, that's also maybe one of the bittersweet things about getting paid to do the thing is that there's an element of, of a decrease in the kind of the joy of that thing. Like you're saying that if you, you know, going yeah. back to big waves, yeah, without it is more appealing. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. I, I played around with that a lot because I was always trying to manage the amount of sort of stress and pressure that I was under because it would just like to be safe in the ocean. You got to manage your energy, and you know if there's too much stress and pressure, and you'll get run down. That's when you get hurt. But a big part of that for me was that sort of um, like uh, being concerned with that everyone else and what they were thinking of my performance so managing that was such a good way to sort of decrease the amount of stress that i had but it's it's tough to do when your career is tied up in it you know yeah one of the things we've been looking at a little bit which i find really interesting is whether or not competition is a trigger for flow or for peak performance and there's elements of that idea that could go either way like we're like we're talking about because there's an element usually of extrinsic motivation or ego orientation within competition because by default you are in competition with something outside of yourself you know so there's there's by default an element of extrinsic motivation but it also uh, for so many people is a huge driver of peak performance a lot of people need competition to be at their best Did, did you find that competition increase your performance and if so why and and maybe that competition isn't literally a surfing competition but even just you know competing with other big surfers or or folks for the magazine cover or whatever it may have been yeah it it definitely heightened the amount of risk that i was willing to take especially in the sort of younger years you know like when you're between 20 and 30 or like 15 and and 30 like i think you're naturally geared to want to impress like that's kind of uh, that that's part of your brain formation you know you're just hyper aware of what people think of you and i think in mm. as far as making helping my performance it pushed me to take more risk that maybe i thought you know in in instances it wasn't possible to do that 
and then that pushed me over the edge and then I realized then you realize that's what you're capable of you know what I mean like so mm. in that way it push you but then in other ways when you're too caught up with that especially in the moment of actually riding the waves and being out in the ocean to me it took away from performance long term because it was just you're just adding a whole other layer of pressure you know that's uh, mm-hmm. exhausting you know because there are different things like you could surf huge waves right and have an amazing session and and you rode some of the best waves that felt amazing in the moment and then you'd get out of the water and then analyze the footage that was going to go out into the media or the photos and maybe you see a photo or something that you were you thought you were positioned in a better spot on the wave and now the right. you see the photo and you don't like it and you see that you, you did something wrong so all of a sudden like you went from feeling like you had the best surf ever and you should have just sat in that and, you know <laughs> to regret. and then with the analyzing the the sort of the photos and stuff you just stole all that away and just you're in regret now which is ridiculous <laughs> you know i would play around with different things where i'd like when i became smarter about doing what i was doing i would never analyze footage or photos after i surfed it would only be down the track before i was about to surf the same wave again then I would analyze the footage of how I surfed it last time because I knew I'd get the chance to surf it again the next day. But I would never steal away the moment of riding the waves and how awesome that was by looking at footage and photos straight away. I think that that sucks so much of the intrinsic joy out of doing it. So I kind of learned different things like that as I, as I get older. But I find that topic of that ego motivation so interesting because – in a way, I don't think you can escape it. Like I, don't, I think it's so built into your subconscious, into your nervous system. Like there's parts of your brain that are constantly scanning your environment and where you sit within a, a social hierarchy. And based mm-hmm. on where you sit in that social hierarchy, even if you're not aware of it, it's regulating your hormones. Like, and it's doing it subconsciously. Like you can think that you don't care about what people think, but I guarantee you, your system does right you know yeah, like, yeah. Well, at some level you do regardless of whether you're introverted or immensely yeah. confident or whatever it is it doesn't matter yeah well, it doesn't matter yeah those sides you might be you know like you're immensely confident but you're still like regulating your sort of hormonal and chemical balance by that confidence of your perspective of where you are in mm-hmm. relation to people around you you know like it's i think that's so hardwired into us that I think, but that's why then flow state and meditation and those things feel so good to us because you, you're getting a break from them, you know? But exactly. You're, you're getting lifted up above out of that state temporarily with the peak experience. But yeah, not possible to sit in that flow state forever because there's sort of evolutionary survival mechanisms that have mm-hmm. built that constant external reference into us you know like so to just be devoid of that is probably impossible as well i was thinking about it even like so much of your survival you know back in hunter gathering times would have been predicated on where you sit within the tribe you know like and doing the wrong thing in the tribe around you or being considered you know like uh important member of the tribe you know so much of your survival is based on that for millions of years of evolution so it's so hardwired into your evolution that I think it's impossible to just take that out, be in flow state all the time. Like it doesn't, I don't think that's possible. I think slipping in and out of it is what is the way to do it, you know. 
Yeah, and then one of the big things we emphasize within our training, we train what are called the positive psychology basics, which are a number of different crucial habits and practices from positive psychology. And one of them is social integration or social Mm -hmm. connection, just the idea that, you know, you have to have a sense of belonging. And what we always emphasize is that you don't get to choose that you need a sense of belonging by default of, you know, your, your humanity, presuming, you know, if you're doing one of our trainings, presumably you're human. And if that's the case, you need social connection. You need belonging in the same way that you need food or water or sleep. You don't, you don't get to decide whether or not, you know, you want that based on preference. It's physiological and it's biologically predetermined as you're mentioning. So yeah, hundred percent maps onto to the research. But um, the final question, Mark, I'd love to, ask you is is based on a quote that i've come across of yours which is the only way through fear is experience i'd love for you to break that down for us ah it's just the basics of like if there's an environment or situation that you're scared of building the preparation the skills the knowledge of how to master that environment that's how you overcome the fear that's how you can go Mm -hmm. into that environment and not be scared there's a lot of like sort of like psychological hacks that you can use but if you don't have the skill set to manage that scary environment then once you're in there you're going to be terrified it doesn't matter but what is possible is like when you face fear and overcome it in one aspect of your life i think just knowing that you can do that so you can feel those apprehensive sort of emotions of when you go to do something scary just knowing that you overcame it there gives you some element of familiarity that when you feel those, that nerves and anxiety that, you know, I got over it in that part of my life or maybe I can get over it in this part of my life too. I think that's the part that carries, but you can't do it. You've got to, still got to get the skills and that's in the experience. Mm. For me, public speaking, to learn to overcome the nerves and anxiety of that was way more difficult than surfing huge waves for whatever reason and be to do with being hyper introverted but i could do all these different hacks and breathing techniques to relax myself before i walked up on stage but it wouldn't matter like right in the moment when i was about to open my mouth and speak if i wasn't prepared if i didn't know the topic i was talking on if you know if i didn't have the skills and everything in place and if i didn't have like the worst case scenarios and what i was going to do in those worst case scenarios mapped out i couldn't do a good job I would just crack under the pressure, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the exact same as surfing. And and I think that's what I mean by that saying. It's like the only way through fear is experience. Like you've got to build that skill set and then slowly get the experience in that environment that you're concerned or worried about. I love the idea there that you mentioned that also it's transferable. It's almost what came to mind for me there is that courage is itself a skill that you can build and then apply to multiple pursuits. So for example, you you obviously built courage or the ability to act despite of fear within surfing and then applied that to public speaking, which are two different pursuits, but yeah. same kind of underlying skill set. Yeah, it's kind of experience in and of itself because you're just getting experience in acting under the the nervous, anxious, emotional states, like you're familiar with feeling those anxious, you know, that, that, that really sort of stomach curdling nerves and becoming familiar with that is experience in itself. I think mm-hmm. when people avoid fear all the time and, and they slowly get backed into a little corner and it's like the whole world just becomes more and more scary because 
you have no familiarity with any any fear and then all of a sudden the emotion of excitement feels like fear to those people because they're avoiding every aspect of it so something that should feel like exciting is now like crippling anxiety because they're, they're just so unfamiliar with any sort of aspect of that emotion so it's like it's experience in itself is doing it in one part of your life and then being able to do it in another but yeah the skills and the knowledge are just you can't avoid you know that you have to have those right yeah and that's one of the interesting things is fear anxiety and excitement at the neurobiological level are all extremely similar signals psychologically we couch them with different contexts and so as you're saying you know, if you, if you don't lean into your edge with regularity and get that sense of excitement, anxiety, or fear, then when you do get it as direct excitement within, you know, the context or a pleasurable activity, it's actually fearful or it's fear-inducing and overwhelming, which is obviously yeah. not something. A, a much more want, articulate so. way of saying it than I said it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Mark, any final points that you'd like to make? And then obviously, if you can let everyone know where, where they can learn more about your work, your journey, and everything you've been doing in the world. I think when people ask me about that element of, experience is the only way through fear so it's like then what's the the starting point or the next step i think the starting point that's really good for people to know is determine where you are in life and where you want to go across all aspects of your life and break that down into day-to-day -day activities that that will help you on that right trajectory and it might be going towards things you want or it might be avoiding things that you don't want it doesn't matter but whatever way gets you in the momentum because knowing that, it'll highlight all the things that you need to eliminate from life and that will help you get into flow state more often because you'll get rid of distractions because they're not in that peripheral that you need to get to the goals. So I think that's a starting point. And then when that's really crystal clear in your life, then it, it snowballs in motivation and all the sort of neurochemicals you you need to be resilient as you go along the journey to get experience to overcome fear but i think so that's the starting point it's like figure out what you want in life and try and become really crystal clear it might change over time but um i think that's by far the most important point like what career do you want you know what what sort of uh social life do you want marriage like relationship with your kids what's your perfect ideal picture of health look like like figure those things out and um that's the best like starting point to get you into flow more often to be more resilient to be able to overcome fears like without that it's real difficult you're like mm. you're out in the ocean without a compass or you're, you're driving the car in traffic without your google maps you know like you need that yeah, part. Clarity. your brain needs that clarity otherwise um you just get riddled with uncertainty so taking the mm. time to do that i think is uh something that has to be has to be mentioned to get a hold of me just uh shoot me a message on uh instagram i'm on uh at mark matthews surf or um or on linkedin you can find me on linkedin i'm kind of on there all the time if it's work related so uh yeah super sweet boss well listen this was great thanks a ton appreciate it no appreciate it thanks for having me If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, 
please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.